This morning we are going to be diving into and wrapping up chapter 4 of the book of Jonah. So if you would like to get your fingers into the tail end of Jonah, now would be a good time to do so. As we're as I've been thinking about this tail end of Jonah, I was thinking how many of us if we looked at our lives honestly would say that everything has gone exactly the way that we hoped it would. How many of us would look at our lives and say that if I were given my druthers, that is exactly how I would have planned all of this out? The reality is, is that I don't think any of us would answer that question. Yep, if I had planned it, this is how my life would have gone. One of the most popular graduation songs that I've heard is one by Rascal Flatts. It's called My Wish. Um, it was my graduation song and many before me and many since then. And I can remember there was a clear emotional connection between my graduating class and, and this song. And the open, opening line of the chorus in it was this. It's my wish for you is that this life becomes all that you want it to. And I mean, even here, you probably have a pretty good understanding why that song would appeal to a class of graduating students, eyes forward with infinite possibilities ahead of them. And it's the same reason why Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You'll Go has been a part of at least half of the graduation ceremonies I've been to, and I've been to quite a few. And we have this desire that we would see the future and that the future would go exactly as we have it planned. But the reality is that life doesn't always become what we envision. Life doesn't always go the way that we planned. And in Jonah, and particularly in chapter 4, we can be reminded that in a lot of cases, this is a good thing. Because in reality, we humans probably, actually we definitely, are not the best judge of the way that our lives should go down. We have such limited scope of what is to come, and we have a God who has an infinite scope of what is to come and an infinite scope of what he has planned for us. So as we get into the word this morning, I ask also that you would pray with me. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are sovereign and you are good, that you know all things, that you have planned all things, and that all of these things you have planned are exactly as they should be. We thank you that we are not the masters of our own fate, but that we can rest and rely on the fact that someone bigger and greater and smarter and more powerful than us has made a far better plan than we ever could. But Lord, that does not mean that our lives are easy. It does not mean that our lives go exactly as we would like, and it doesn't mean that it is easy when your plan takes us in directions that we would not have willingly gone down. 
And Lord, we pray that you would comfort our hearts in the times where life does not go according to plan, where life goes incredibly sideways. And we ask that you would give us the faith necessary, that you would be our source to hold on to you in the midst of these things and know that even in this, you are still God, you are still good, and you still have a plan for your people. Lord, I've been reminded this week as we have been inundated in the news with so many of our first responders, particularly our police and RCMP that have been under attack and many have even been killed in the last few months of the the danger and the darkness of our world. I pray for our first responders, particularly our police that have dedicated their lives to the service of justice and the, that people would be kept safe. Lord, this is above and beyond in the level of violence that we have seen in many years. God, we pray for our police officers, particularly here in Elk Point and Bonneville and St. Paul and Vermilion, that you would keep them safe, that you would watch over them and that you would rally your people around them, that even in the darkness that they see and experience and walk in so often, that they might see your light shining through by the work of your word and by the speaking of your people. We pray particularly for those amongst the helping professions that are Christians that do profess faith in you, that they would shine their lights clearly in these dark places. And that when the world has gone completely awry for themselves or for the people that they are serving, that they would be able to bring your truth to bear. And God, in other times, life doesn't go according to plan. We just ask that we would be able to trust you. We thank you for the families in our congregation and that you have not caused us to walk this life alone, that we have a church family and that we have our own nuclear families that we can rest and rely on. We pray for the families represented here in this church that they would be led well, that they would dedicate themselves to the teaching of your word in these families. We know that there are several among us who are looking forward to a new little one joining the family in the moments coming. We think particularly of Bell and Cito as the time comes close, and we just ask that for all that are looking forward to welcoming new ones into the family, that you would protect these these women and children, that they would be safe in the bringing to term and the delivery of these children, and that we as your church would rally around them in the days and weeks before and after these children arrive to care for them and show them how we can show your love as your people. And God, as we spend time in Jonah chapter 4, wrapping up this book, we just ask that you would impress upon our hearts your greatness, your goodness, and let us know that you are the one who has decided. You are the one in charge, and that is a very good thing. Lord, we commit these things to you and pray them in Jesus' name.
Amen. So, let's hear Jonah's take on the Lord and his plans. We will be looking at chapter 4, but we'll start in verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw what they did, that is Nineveh, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is God's word. So good news, preacher. Those people that you preach to, the men and women and children and animals, they've repented just as you've said. They have repented and God has decided not to destroy their city like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. This city of over 100,000 souls is saved. And how does Jonah respond? It displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. Could you imagine what it would take for you to be angry that God did not wipe a city of 120,000 plus people, women, children, and animals off the face of the earth, that God would save so many people? And yet this is where Jonah finds himself. Easily one of the most amazing revivals of a pagan nation in Scripture, one of the clearest examples of God's work through one of his prophets, and Jonah is displeased exceedingly. He seethed that God would dare save these people. And here 
we finally get to the bottom of God's story with Jonah. Jonah didn't flee from God because he was afraid of the Ninevites. He didn't run because he doubted God. He wasn't worried that he would fail in his mission to preach to them. It was precisely because of what he knew about God that he was willing to risk God's wrath and disobey him. He says, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. If you were to take just the back end of that sentence, that would become a great blessing for God's people. You are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What an amazing worship of God that is. And yet, coming from the mouth of Jonah here, it is being spat at God with venom. How dare you? I knew that you would do this. Not too often do I hear this incredible goodness of God being used as grounds for our disobedience. At first, looking at Jonah, we assume maybe... He isn't aware of the greatness of this God that he's running from. Maybe he doesn't know God well enough. But Jonah did know God, particularly his character, and in some sense, he did not like what he knew, at least as far as it came to God's response to other people. You'll notice if you were to scan back to chapter 2 in Jonah's Thanksgiving psalm, that he is quite happy that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Why? Because that love and grace and mercy and long-suffering patience is directed at someone that Jonah agrees with God directing it towards, namely himself. I am more than happy for God to be gracious and good to me. No, Jonah didn't wholly disprove of God's character, just the ones that in this particular instance God was choosing to direct this positive response towards. Jonah has the same problem with God that so many children have with their parents. They think they know better. Jonah thought he knew better. That mistake is as old as mankind themselves you can take a look at Adam and Eve. You can think of Cain and Abel. That verb used to speak of Jonah's anger in our passage is found exactly the same in the story of Cain and Abel from Genesis 4. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. That word for anger there is to burn or to be kindled. Cain burned with anger. Why? Because his brother's offering was accepted and his was not. And in Hebrews 11.4, we're told that his was not accepted because he lacked the faith required to make such an acceptable offering. Cain's offering was not accepted because his faith was not in God. And this anger led to the first murder of another person. Cain thought he knew better. 
And Jonah's anger is ultimately because of a lack of faith as well. Not in God's attributes. We can see his confession about God's goodness in chapter 4, verse 2. But a lack of faith in God's ability to choose rightly. God has chosen wrong. God is wrong. I knew that you would save these evil Ninevites. And these evil Ninevites do not deserve to be saved. God, you chose wrong. In fact, he's so upset that God would dare to save these wicked Ninevites that he calls upon God, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I I don't even doubt the sincerity of these words. Jonah is so convinced that he's right, so convinced that God has erred in his judgment that he no longer even wants to live. And how does God respond to this? He ignores Jonah's melodramatics entirely and instead asks Jonah a question. Do you do well to be angry? It's the first of two times this question gets asked. After such incredible insolence, after such embellishment and accusation by Jonah, he gets what in the original language is a three-word response. Do you do well to be angry? The obvious implied answer is that no, Jonah does not, in fact, do well to be angry. He has no leg to stand on, especially given his recent aquatic adventure. He knows that he does not do well to be angry, but rather than engaging with this question that God has leveled at him, what does he do? He leaves town to sulk. Jonah is hoping against hope that maybe God will yet come around and that Nineveh will be destroyed. God tells Jonah, okay, these people have turned. I will relent. They are saved. And Jonah goes and builds a little booth outside of town to sit and watch. Maybe God will still get him. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. And here Jonah sits. He sits in hopes that maybe God will come around and destroy these awful Assyrian heathens like they deserve. And he builds a little booth from which to watch this. I was thinking about him building this little booth, but then I realized Nineveh is located in what we call Mosul, Iraq. And depending on the time of year, daytime highs in Mosul reach somewhere in the neighborhood of 42 degrees Celsius. That kind of weather is incredibly hazardous to even the hardiest of people. So Jonah builds himself a shelter. He is hot, both emotionally and physically. And then God, proving a point, acts a whole parable out right in front of Jonah's eyes. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. 
And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The power of parables, these stories with ingrained moral lessons, has been evident to all of mankind for eternity. That's how we teach our children. We've got the nursery rhymes. We've got the big bad wolf and the tortoise and the hare and the ugly duckling. All these stories that teach us something about our world. And this particular story, Jonah gets played out in front of him in real life. And I find some crossover with this story with another one given to King David after having Uriah killed and taking Bathsheba as his wife. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan says to David, You are that man. And during that whole story, you can see God, through his prophet, winding David up. David getting progressively more and more angry where he is ready to pronounce judgment of death on this man for his wickedness, only to find out he is that man. And the same goes for Jonah here. Jonah ignores God's first question, do you do well to be angry? So here goes round two. Jonah, you are sitting here in this sweltering heat. I grow you a plant. It grows and dies in the span of a day at my hand. So tell me, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah still persists. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. To his credit, David, when confronted with his actions, when he hears this story from the prophet Nathan, his immediate response to Nathan is, I have sinned against the Lord. He immediately comes to his senses and repents. He does what Jonah refuses to do. He humbles his heart, acknowledges he was wrong, and that God was right. And this is the crux of the matter here. This is Jonah's great failing in this passage, and that is what we must learn from this morning. Jonah refuses to submit himself to God. He refuses to humble his heart and accept God's judgments. When Jonah is asked by God, do you do well to be angry? There's all sorts of echoes from throughout Scripture that come to mind. 
I think of Job in Job 1, his whole family, his wealth, his everything taken from him, and he falls before the Lord in worship. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. I hear an echo of Paul's question many years later in Romans 9. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its maker, why have you made me like this? David repents. Job worships. And Paul asks the question, what is the obvious answer to the question that Jonah is leveled at? Does he do well to be angry? No, he cannot. Jonah was so angry that he is ready to die. And he asked God twice, just strike me down where I stand. And this is so perfectly opposite to the response of Job. Because in that very end of that passage I read, in all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Jonah, in his anger, by his reaction, he was indicting God. He was refusing to humble himself to the lordship of God and saying, God, you have gotten this wrong. You've made a mistake. I'm going to sit here and watch the city, and maybe you'll fix it. Jonah did not need to look as far as Job for an example of a broken and contrite, worshipful heart before God. He didn't have to think back to King David for an example of repentance and faithfulness. No, the example that Jonah needed to heed, the repentance and faith and humility that Jonah needed, Jonah, the great prophet of the Lord, the one who said to the sailors, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He didn't need Job's example. He didn't need David's example. He just needed to open his eyes and look at this city before him. 120,000 souls, pagans and violent idol worshipers who when confronted by the word of the Lord forsook everything. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This question that God asked Jonah, do you do well to be angry, is much more than a question about Jonah's emotional state. It was asking Jonah, in the basest of terms, who's in charge here? Who is in charge whether the Ninevites live or die? The Lord. Who is in charge of the plant and the worm? The Lord. Who is in charge of the tempest and the fish? The Lord. And God asked Jonah in his reactions whether or not he actually believes that statement he made at the closing of chapter 2. Salvation belongs to whom? Salvation belongs to the Lord. I think that's why the book ends the way it does. The Lord says, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle end? We want the rest of the story. Well, then what happened? 
did Jonah turn? Did he not? We want the rest of the story. But according to God's purposes, we have received enough. Why was that enough? Why don't we get the rest of the story? Because the ultimate message of the story is summed up. That salvation belongs to the Lord. In Romans 9, Paul quotes the words of the Lord to Moses from Exodus 33. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Our story ends with God's indictment of Jonah. And it ends on a note that says, it is the Lord who is in charge. So to bring that home for us, I have to ask you the question, do you do well to be angry? And as we have read and heard, this isn't just a question, are you mad at God? This is a question that ultimately asks you, who is in charge in your life? No matter the situation, do you well to be happy? Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be sad? In your life, who is in charge? Look at your dealings with God. Even in the situations where God didn't act as you would have cho chosen, has your heart reflected a Job-like spirit, a spirit that will bow down in worship even in the face of such adversity? Or has your spirit been a closer match to Jonah, angry and charging God with wrong? And I recognize that I am treading on tender ground when the rug is pulled out from beneath us and everything in our world is going sideways. It's not easy for us to cling to the truth that we know. It is not easy to acknowledge that God is in charge and that this is, in fact, a good thing. We can know the truth and it can seem like bad news to us. We can know that God is in charge and we can just shake our heads and go, God's got it wrong. We're not supposed to be a people that just takes every punch that is thrown at us with this serene and transcendent grace, unaffected by the pangs of the world. We're not above the world. We're not emotionless. It is not sinful when we are grieved or brought low by trials. God can handle our laments. God has given us an entire genre within Scripture for how to lament and bring our protests before God in a righteous manner. We can go, I can't see how this can be the way it's supposed to be, but there is a way to do it and a way not to do it, and Jonah does not know the way to do it. In the end... Do we say along with our Savior, not my will, but thine be done? Do we glorify God, or do we build a booth watching and waiting for God to change his mind? How many of us have gotten caught up at some point in our lives where we see something go wrong, we decide God's got it wrong, and then the next days, weeks, months, years, decades even, 
the rest of our lives is spent in this booth just sitting and waiting, God, you've got to fix this before I can ever move past this. I'm going to sit and wait for you to fix this problem you've created. We just sit there and wait for God to change his mind. But who is in charge? And is it good news that he is in charge? The Lord says in Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We don't hear the end of Jonah's story, but by now we have heard enough. This is a low moment for Jonah. His faith is in tatters, and it is a warning to us all. But like I said before, before we throw Jonah under the bus, let us recognize ourselves in this. Let us recognize and take stock of our own hearts of the times where we have refused to place God in the position of being in charge, where we have said, nope, God's got it wrong. We love to hate Jonah for this, but we do it all the time. And we just hope that it's not immortalized in Holy Scripture for generations of Christians to read about our own spiritual failings. I hope that from our time in Jonah, we come away with so much more than the story about the guy and the fish. I hope we come away with an absolute awe for how amazing our God is, with an absolute sense of the surpassing greatness and worth and power of this almighty God, bringing disaster and relenting from disaster, bringing judgment and salvation justice and grace, these not warring sides with each other within God's person, justice versus grace and judgment versus salvation, but recognizing that these are both attributes of the same God that he brings to bear upon his creation for his glory and for our good if we have worshipped him. We will never comprehend the complete mind of God. But failing to comprehend his ways is no excuse for faithlessness. I can look at so many things in my life and say, I don't understand. I don't know why I'm dealing with what I'm dealing with. I don't know why this went the way it does. But that doesn't give me an excuse to say God's wrong. It doesn't give me an excuse to give up my faith in God. Sometimes God's leading and instruction and the life that he has ordained for us will take us in directions that seem utterly confusing, utterly hopeless, opposite to what we should do. But in those moments, we must call to mind who it is that we worship, who it is that is leading us in these dark valleys. 
we do not worship a limited, fallible, shifting, morally ambiguous deity. We worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Our God is sovereign and all-knowing and all-powerful and everywhere present. He is glorious and he is good. So sometimes the best we can do when we have no way to reason out why this is something that God would allow to happen, when we have no way of saying, yep, this is obviously what God's doing here. Sometimes the best we can do is be like children and trust that our Father knows best. Not a mindless subservience, but a wholehearted faith. We must trust that he cares about his people far more than we could ever imagine, and that he will be glorified, which if we are his people is our greatest aim, to see him glorified. And what does that look like? It looks like clinging to hope in the Lord, even in season where there seems to be no hope. Thinking of Jonah and his frustration with the Ninevites, it looks like carrying the gospel to everyone, regardless of their affiliation or nationality or gender or creed or color or sin. Everyone needs the gospel, and we are to take it to them regardless of if we've been sinned against, regardless of how much we dislike that person or people group. We take the gospel to them. It looks like placing everything we have, our time, our money, our health, our family, our friends, our homes, our jobs, everything that we have, we place it in God's hands and say, God, do with this as you please. And that is so incredibly terrifying because we're telling God, someone that we will never fully understand, do with this as you please, and then knowing that there's a good chance that somewhere along the lines he's going to do something that we go, why? This doesn't make sense to me. And if you don't yet know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it looks like total and utter surrender. Laying everything at the feet of the Lord, confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, repenting of your sin, asking forgiveness, and turning from that sin, and living your life according to the commandments of Scripture. That will not be easy. That will not be comfortable. It will involve utter life change. But in your heart of hearts, who is in charge? As we close this morning, whether we're more like the Ninevites who were far from the Lord and just in need of God's salvation, or whether we're more like Jonah, knowing God full well and wrestling back and forth with the sovereignty of God, let us all ask that God would set our hearts and minds aright. And I don't care who you are this morning. If you have been 
a believer for five minutes or 50 years or more, if you tell me that you don't wrestle with the sovereignty of God, you're not thinking about the sovereignty of God. Because there are going to be moments in your life where the sovereignty of God does not make sense and it does not necessarily seem like good news. And you will wrestle with that and you will fight with that. And if you come out the other side saying, I don't get it, but God's got this. I don't get it, but God has a plan. This isn't okay to me, but God has a plan and I will give him glory anyways. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job worshiped God after losing everything. And Jonah refused to worship God after watching a people that wasn't even his own receive God's faithfulness and God's promise. We need to pray that God would set our hearts aright that in all of these things, God would give us eyes to see that he is still God and he is still good. That he would give us hearts to worship him because there's going to be moments where we don't have the heart to worship him and we need him to give us the faith. Regardless of our circumstances, we need to see and know God's greatness and pray that we have the humility to submit all things to the Lord our God and that we would not make the same mistake that Jonah did and spend the rest of our lives just battling against God saying, you've got this wrong. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge here this morning that you are sovereign over all things that you cause all things to work together for the good of those that would believe in you. And we want to acknowledge that we do not trust you perfectly. And we ask that you would give us hearts that would trust in you, even in the face of the greatest dangers and darknesses that our lives are going to experience. We ask that we would cling to you even in these times and that you would cause us to cling to you even in the midst of these times. We acknowledge, O oh Lord, that you are in control. You are in charge of all things from the tiniest of atoms to the movement of the stars. You have set all of these things in motion, and you sustain them and keep them in motion. And if you were to turn your back for a second, they would cease to be in motion, O oh Lord. You are the God that we worship. You are all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present. You are glorious and you are good. And God, we ask that you would help us to see that that is good news, that we can trust in you no matter what we're going through, no matter the trial that we face, the medical issues that we see looming in front of us, all of these things we can trust in you because you have a plan and you have ordained these things for a purpose. And when things are going great, when our life is full of joy and happiness and celebration, may we turn to you and say, 
We only have this because of you. Thank you, O Lord. God, from the darkest of times to the greatest of times, may our gratitude be to you. May we acknowledge you and worship you for what you have done in the joy and in the sorrow on the mountaintop and in the deepest valley, Lord. You are there. And God, for those among us who are just barely clinging to faith, we pray that you would help us as your church, as your people, to rally around them and bolster their faith, to bring comfort to the hurting. And God, we pray that we would not just bring comfort with good words, but that we would seek to meet the needs of the people that you place in our path, that we would care for the orphans and the widows and those less fortunate, that we would not be a cloistered bubble of inaction, but that we would go from here with hearts on fire to share your gospel to all who do not know you, that they might see and know you as we do, that they might see that they're not in charge of their lives and all of the chaos and disorder of their lives does not happen without a purpose, but that you have ordained these things for a reason. And that you are trustworthy. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to worship here this morning. Thank you for each one who has joined us both here and online. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would apply your word to our hearts and that we might be changed because of it. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll hear our benediction from Ephesians 3. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.